did the creator of Little Shop of Horrors actually predict his own future? And then we take a look at a bizarre conspiracy theory coming out of the world of gang stalking. Is it possible that people are playing Pokemon Go, but you are the Pokemon? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are going to have an awesome weekend. I'm all sunburned. I'm going to be inside. I'm going to hopefully be inside an igloo all weekend as my skin replenishes itself. I'm not an outdoorsy guy. I'm sure you guys have picked up on that. First off, let's give a shout out to our newest Patreon supporter, How to Survive Damn Near Anything. How to Survive Damn Near Anything. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Really, really helps out a lot. He's actually suggested stories in the past. He had the one about Trump was building the Space Force to fight aliens, and then that went into North Korea utopia. So two episodes, really. Thank you very much for that. If you can't support the Patreon, that's fine, too. Just help get the word out about the show. That also really, really helps out a lot. And a lot of you guys are doing it, so I really, really appreciate that. The show's growing. I'm looking at all the metrics. It's... it's doing quite good how to survive damn near anything let's go ahead and we're going to start off in the jason jalopy we're leaving behind oregon we're going to drive on out to broadway so we're headed to new york we're driving through broadway this is bulletproof the car's been made bulletproof now i will always remember new york as 70s new york because when i grew up in the 70s and the 80s <laughs> new york was just known for its rampant crime it was basically robocop without the robo or really without the cops either it was just a crime-ridden hellhole so we're driving real fast through broadway go 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 we're passing broadway we're going to off broadway which is another section of the city where plays that aren't the big marquee plays they're not the phantom of the operas they're not the lion kings those are performed on off broadway but i tell you to keep driving because we're going to off off broadway On Off-Off-Broadway, you tend to get more experimental shows. We're actually back in the year 1982, and there is a show opening up called Little Shop of Horrors. So we're going to walk in the theater. We don't have tickets. It's still the production time. They're still getting everything together. And we're actually going to meet the writers of the play, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Now, they became a writing team. They actually met at a musical workshop, which sounds quite whimsical, right? But I'm sure they just sat around and talked about what's better, the trumpet or the tuba. So in this workshop, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken met up, and first off, they did a musical based on a Kurt Vonnegut novel. Not any of the good ones, i.e. the ones that I know the title to, what, Slaughterhouse-Five? Wasn't that him? Who wrote Fahrenheit 451? I don't think that was him. I think that was Ray Bradbury. Or it might have been. I don't know. It wasn't any of the... It wasn't one of those two that might not even be a Kurt Vonnegut novel. It wasn't one of that. It was like, God, where are the roses? Or can I pick some flowers? Jesus. Or something like that. But I could easily research it. But we're not... That's not the point of this topic. So, their second play, though... And that play did okay. The second play, though, they go, let's make a musical based on that old movie we watched when we were kids. Little Shop of Horrors. It was a old spooky movie about a plant eating people and they go let's turn this into a 1950s doo-wop stage musical we're barely going to have any cast we'll have a puppet and maybe like six people on stage perfect for a low budget play off off broadway now howard ashman wrote the lyrics for little shop of horrors and when you have a stage musical you tend to have a ton of songs in it but when it gets transformed into a movie musical you end up cutting a bunch of those songs out just for time or pacing just doesn't work One of the songs that was carried over from the stage musical to the movie, which was a huge hit, 
The movie itself was a huge hit. was a song called The Meek Shall Inherit. And it's funny, it's actually my favorite song in the entire musical. It's on the movie soundtrack. It's a very, very interesting song, especially for fans of the paranormal, for what we talk about on this show. The whole movie is catering to, you know, people who love other people getting dismembered and fed to plants and Faustian bargains. The whole thing, Audrey to the plant, is telling this meek little man, feed me, feed me, Seymour, and I will give you your heart's desire. Make you rich, you want women, you want cars, you want money, whatever. I guess, that, I guess that goes along with rich. It's a separate thing. You gotta ask for money, too. And that's what we really know is the deal with the devil. This song, The Meek Shall Inherit, is a really interesting song because the setup is everyone's telling Seymour, who previous to getting this plant was dirt poor. He was an orphan who was super poor. The song's about everyone trying to get him to sign contracts. And then he does this solo. Seymour does this solo and he says, if I sign these contracts, I am okay with murdering people to feed to my plant. Because the whole story up to now, he's been really, really cagey about it. Like, he's doing it, but he doesn't feel really good about chopping people up. This song says, I never knew success would come with such messy, nasty strings. That whole idea of the Illuminati, like, to become a superstar, you have to do something horrible. That's really common in, like, the Illuminati lore. The reason why all of these superstars, Brad Pitt, Bradley Cooper, other actors named Brad, Brad Dorff, that Brad from um, Everyone Loves Raymond. All the Brads. All the hits. They've all had to do something horrible. Anytime you see like Ariana Grande or Madonna or Lady Gaga, they're involved in this horrible stuff. Who knew success would come with messy, nasty strings? He goes on to say, if I sign these contracts, that means I'm willing to do these things. Originally, he didn't know what he was getting into. So he did it, and his life started to be successful. But from this point on, if he continues to sign these contracts, he will pay for it. It's a really, really good song. He comes to the conclusion, I have to do it because the only woman who's ever loved me loves me because I'm rich, which isn't true. She actually loved him before that, but so he signs the contracts. And that sets the stage for the rest of the play. The play was a hit. The play was such a hit that it moved from off-off-Broadway to off-Broadway. And it was winning all these awards. And what happened was Broadway came a-knocking. Hey, We want to put your show on one of our premier theaters. We want to blow this up. You're going to be one of the biggest plays that had already been running for years and years and years, but we're going to make it even bigger. And Howard Ashman says, no, this isn't a Broadway show. This is an off-Broadway show. Millions of dollars left to the table because of that decision. Now, they did make the movie. They did make the movie. But that takes him down a different path. So he makes the movie. It becomes a big hit. There was a lot of struggles with that, too, because they wanted to change the ending. So Howard Ashman and Alan Menken do the movie. And because they do the movie, Disney is at this point thinking about doing musicals again. They really haven't committed. They'd have a movie would maybe have one or two songs in it. But this is the time period of The Great Mouse Detective, The Black Cauldron, and Oliver and Company. So Disney goes, hey, we're putting together this, this movie about some dancing cats or something. We didn't, really look, we didn't really look at any of the notes. Do you want to write a song for it? We know you guys are hot from Little Shop of Horrors. So the writing team of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken write a song for it. But while they're there, Howard Ashman finds out that they're making a movie called The Little Mermaid. And Howard starts going, hey guys, you need to do a musical like you used to do. Remember back when we weren't weren't kids? (laughs) Remember back when Walt Disney was a kid? You had Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella. 
we need musicals again. And he goes, and I'm the guy to write them. And my partner, his partner walks by right then. He's like, oh, and that guy too. His eyes shift side to side. Nothing without this dude. He goes, we want to write The Little Mermaid. Animation and music are the perfect combination. So they write this all the songs for The Little Mermaid, this writing duo. And it starts what's known as the Disney Renaissance. Because when I was a kid, Disney was kind of lame. Like, I did like the Black Cauldron and stuff like that. But I saw the Black Cauldron, the theater was empty. The opening day of Disney movie was empty. When I went to go see Great Mouse Detective, I think it was like opening weekend in the theater. Three or four families. People were not watching Disney movies in the theaters. Little Mermaid came out, massive hit. It was known as the beginning of the Disney Renaissance. Around this time, he tells his writing partner and friend that he has AIDS. Now, again, we're talking the late 80s. AIDS was a death sentence then. You had seven years max to live. Seven years, and that's if you're lucky. A lot of times, three years, five years. No cure, no treatments in sight. He has AIDS. So he doesn't have a lot of time left. And this is what I think is interesting. The, the story of Seymour was about a guy who came out of really nothing and signed a contract with a creature to be successful. Ended up destroying him. How that parallels to this is that Howard Ashman's next project that he wanted to do with Disney was Aladdin. He wanted to write all the songs for Aladdin. He's like, you guys got to do this story. He might have actually been the one who was pushing for it behind the scenes or even came up with it. He was a he was a very, very strong proponent of doing a full movie musical of Aladdin. He wrote all the songs. He had all 13 songs written by Howard Ashman and then Alan Menken was doing the composing. But while he's working on Aladdin, Disney goes, listen, we got another movie we want you to do. We want you to do Beauty and the Beast. And Howard didn't want to do it. Howard's like, I don't want to do that. I want to keep working on Aladdin. And they go, no, 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 no. You, you got Aladdin in the bag. We've seen it. Or in the lamp. And they're nudging him. He's like, I have no time. I have no time for that. I want to do, no nudging. I want to do Aladdin. And they go, no, just write a couple songs for Beauty and the Beast. This was his contract moment. It's a really, really interesting story. Back in 1982, he'd written a story about a man who had to make this decision. Now, he didn't, wasn't chopping up Disney executives, but he said, fine. He finally breaks down, and he goes, fine, I will do Beauty and the Beast. I'll do Beauty and the Beast. So he stopped working on Aladdin. He writes, writing, starts writing the songs for Beauty and the Beast, which is considered Disney's like best animated film. He signed that contract and worked on those songs, perfected those songs before he could finish Aladdin. He ends up bedridden due to AIDS. He wasn't able to finish composing Aladdin now. When Beauty and the Beast opened to critics, he was a 40-year-old man who weighed 80 pounds, and he was blind. The disease ravaged his body. He's laying there in his hospital bed. These executives run in. Maybe they walked in. I don't think they were pushing nurses out of the way, but they came to him and they said, Hey, Howard, I hope you know that Beauty and the Beast was a huge hit. It was amazing. Everyone loves it. It's great. But the project he really wanted, Aladdin, he never got to see. He died before that came out. And not only did he not get to see it, because he stopped working on Aladdin to do Beauty and the Beast. They only kept three of his songs. The rest of them, they just scrapped. They're probably in a vault somewhere. The reason why I wanted to tell that story is a lot of times we talk... He obviously, he didn't murder a bunch of people and feed them to a planet. It wasn't that insane, but that's kind of the point. He signed a contract to work on Beauty and the Beast, and in the end, he didn't get his magnum opus. He didn't get his Aladdin. Little Mermaid was something he was just walking by the office and goes, hey, we sh- you should make that a musical. Aladdin was his passion project, but he sold out. 
He sold out to do Beauty and the Beast, and he didn't get to finish The Little Mermaid. And then 10 of his 13 songs were scrapped. But out of all the work he did that he had to stop, only three of his songs made it. And one of the songs was Be a Friend, or You you Have a Friend Like Me, or... And then two other songs I didn't know the title to. But that's a lot of times when we talk about selling our soul to the devil, that's what it actually is. It's not the Brads getting together and sacrificing a non-Brad baby. It's the fact that they're constantly making decisions and they go, I don't want to do this, but I'll make money doing this. This project sucks and I'm embarrassed, but I'll make a lot of money. Or... It'll get me connected with this film company because I want to do my own project. You can always look at actors, especially actors. They'll always have a passion project, right? Uh, Brad Pitt's was World War Z. He was pushing for that for years. So they'll have these passion projects and they'll go forward. And, and even that movie got cut off at the knees, see? And then he was back to shooting whatever he's in nowadays. Uh, what's the one? I don't even know what Brad Pitt's last movie was. We sell our souls in far more mundane ways we do it all the time the most common example is working a job you hate he didn't like doing beauty and the beast he wanted to do aladdin and if he had listened to seymour's song that he wrote he wouldn't have signed that contract he goes no i don't want to do beauty and the beast i'm sure you guys need help with it but i want to finish aladdin because i honestly don't have much time left you probably didn't tell them that but none of us have much time left right working jobs we hate is really how we sell our soul to the devil. I mean, uh, there may be a minority of people who actually literally sell their soul to the devil for fame and power, but I don't think it's all everyone in entertainment. I think everyone in entertainment, everyone that high up in the industry has sold their soul in some fashion, whether it's promoting a product that they don't want to be in, whether it's their anti-gun, but they're only doing action movies. Or they're pro-gun, but they only do movies. They only do dramas like Doubt, and they're like, oh man, I wish I had a bunch of guns right now. That's the way we really sell our soul, right? By working 20 years for a job we hate, and we make good money, right? We live very comfortably. But you figure, you know, I could cut my comfortable living down. I could live off 20000 a year, as opposed to 50000 a year, and be a park ranger or something like that. That's really selling your soul. That's really selling your soul in a very, very daily way. And he did it. When he was a young man, he was able to turn down millions of dollars and say, no, I don't want to take it on Broadway. It's an off-Broadway show. But when you get older and your expenses grow, someone offers you money, you're less likely to turn it down. I think that's a really, really interesting story. Obviously, it's a tragic one that he passed away. His writing partner is still making musicals. He's still working with Disney. But um, yeah, that's the story of Howard Ashman and a man who wrote a song that really predicted not only his life, but the lives of really everyone who sells their soul, whether it's for a plant to a literal devil or just to life's expectations of you. Fascinating story. How to survive damn near anything. Let's go ahead and we're going to hop in that Carpenter Copter. We are going to head out we're gonna fly on out to your local home depot he's like what is my anticlimactic it's flying over we see a pretty empty parking lot so we're gonna land off in the field we don't want to interfere with what we're about to see so let's all hop out of the carpenter copter and i have my official jason carpenter binoculars we're looking through it's just one pair though we have to share so wait your turn we're looking through the binoculars we see a young woman get out of her car. 
She's walking through the parking lot. And then we start to see some other cars pull into the parking lot. And I'm like, hmm? Hmm? And you're like, Jason, it is a parking lot of a major retailer. Cars will pull in. No, no, wait, wait. She's walking through the parking lot. We see even more cars pull up. Until eventually the parking lot is full of cars. See why we didn't land the carpenter copter there? She walks into the Home Depot. And there's not a lot of people in it. She's like, this is good. I've always wanted to come in and buy hammer and nails and not be accosted by anybody. Otherwise, I might use that hammer and nails on them. She's walking through the store. She gets to a section, the nail section, and she's like, I don't know, just bumping, jumping nails into her cart. They're like falling through the cart. She's like, oh, no. And then she notices that Home Depot is packed. And you're like, Jason, this is you're basically just doing a story about cause and effect. Does this have some moral story like the last one at the end? You're like, well, you know, if you go at this hour, there's going to be a bunch of people there. No, because what she notices is not only is the Home Depot full, it's full in her area. And she keeps getting bumped with shopping carts. Ow, ow. She's holding nails in her hands. Ah, ah. Every time they bump her, another one digs deep into the skin. Ah. She knows what's going on. She knows what's going on. Within about five or ten minutes, everyone's gone. She once again is alone in the Home Depot, save for a few employees. She walks back out to her car. The parking lot is pretty much empty except for her car. She looks around, and she knows what just happened. We don't, right? We don't because we're not nuts, but she does. What just happened was a game of dark web tag. I got this on the Reddit for gang stalking, and that's something that AZ recommended to me a long time ago. So thank you, AZ. As we're walking around Home Depot, we go in. I have to buy some nails now, too. They're all strewn across the floor. Where's your magnet section, sir? This woman tells this story about dark web tag. And she she uses this Home Depot example as what actually dark web tag looks like. So she believes herself to be a targeted individual, in a sense. So in the world of gang stalking, you have the stalkers. And then you have targeted individuals. And these are people that are being... Followed around by either the government or some sort of Illuminati group. The, the Brads, the, the the great Brads are are running the whole thing. They're just looking for all Brad babies. Everyone else is just cattle. Cattle for the slaughter. Or to breed more Brads. You have that going on, right? You have like this high... Le- you don't! You don't! But they believe that you have this high-level group that's monitoring them. And trying to drive them crazy by doing weird stuff. So whenever they see something weird happen... They go, oh, that's just the gang stalkers. That guy scratching his belly, he's trying to make me see that he's actually a gang stalker. It's supposed to psychically hurt me, because then I know that I'll never be unseen. See that guy jumping out of that flaming building and, and asking for water? Ah, I'm not falling for your tricks. I've seen that too many times, because I hang out in a place full of arsonists. But there's also this thing called dark web tag, where you're not always a targeted individual. Just every so often. This is actually fascinating. This could work. This could work. Um, This isn't just some weird look into a mind of someone who believes in gang stalking. This actually could work. I I think someone could actually make some good money off of this, honestly. So if you're an app developer, (laughs) grab your notebook now and start taking notes. So she starts off by saying that she found out about this from her stalker's brother. So I guess they're like hanging out. Which would be really easy to gang stalk someone that you were friends with, right? 
Because you'd just be like, oh man, I'm late. I'm late for stalking. Oh wait, I'll just walk over there. Say, hey, you punch in. Toot. And then you walk and you're like, hey, you want to play some GoldenEye? That would actually be a pretty chill job. I figure like being a stalker, I always imagine it to be like someone, you know, like literally stalking you. Not sitting next to you sharing a Shasta Cola. That's just a friend. That's just a friend who's a weirdo who hides in the, who lives in the bushes and then comes out and drinks some Shasta with you. But the stalker's brother, see, tells this story about a thing called dark web tag. So here's how it works. Everyone has a cell phone or a smartphone nowadays. You have it in your car and your computer as well. So if you're like, I don't have a smartphone, you, you got a tracking device somewhere near you. Most of us do. Otherwise, how are you listening to this podcast? I guess I would say. And randomly, an app will be downloaded onto your device. And that will make you it. So you're the unwilling participant in the game. But there are people who actually want to play Dark Web Tech. They download the app through Google or Apple Store. I'm sure it's an official app. And it basically is a GPS locator. So what it does is it tells me where you're at. So they just show up at a Home Depot. You're in a Home Depot. Everybody shows up. So what's the point of this game other than to just be kind of a hilarious prank? There's a lottery system built into this. So what it is, this is super bizarre. Let me say this. Her version of it is just just dumb, right? My version of it will work. Let me tell you what she says it's going to happen. So... Let's say that I want to play deep web tag, and you're it. I take my phone, I walk up to you, and as we get closer, my phone acknowledges that I'm within, you know, one foot, which is actually super close. That's a Subway sandwich close. Let's say I'm within five feet of you. Money will be deducted from my account, and it will go to the deep web server. So that part doesn't make sense. Why would I play a game where I lose money? If, if it was, if you get within five feet of the subject, you're going to lose money. I'd be like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that then. I'm not going to do that. It's a weird detail. And then they can also buy lottery tickets with the app. That's the thing with these type of theories that I don't know who's saying the crazy stuff. The targeted individual or the stalker's brother or the stalker disguised as their brother. I don't know, but that doesn't make sense. But anyways, the whole point is basically a GPS system and there's a chance there's a game of chance and they just show up it's like a mass mob but it's centered around one person and they're not supposed to know they're being followed see she does she's a targeted individual she knows the signs to look for and then everybody leaves everybody goes about their business is that true probably not little asterisks there we'll get into that in a second but is her version of it true probably not <laughs> asterisks on that one too a lot of asterisks is this episode so she says that apparently the person who is it, which actually now that I think about it is T-I spelt backwards, but she, she didn't even figure that one out. It, if you're it, it's supposed to be totally random, but her stalker's brother is also a hacker and he's been constantly hacking the deep web, all of it, the whole deep web, he's been hacking the deep web to constantly make her it. So she keeps getting attacked, not really attacked, just people walking within five feet of her. She said that's why everyone was getting close to her with the shopping cart. They're trying to get within that window. Here, let's break this down real quick before I give you your money-making scheme that might ruin the world. It may exist. Something like this may exist, but it wouldn't be 80 people in a single town, right? Because then you would hear about it. If you had multiple people, if you had enough people to swarm a Home Depot, to fill up a Home Depot parking lot, then it's on Twitter. People are talking about it on Twitter, on local Facebook pages. Albuquerque Facebook! And there's like... 
how to get a job and like how to sell Lululemon leggings. And then it's one's like, do you want to stalk people for money? And little asterisks there, they take the money from you. If it was that big in one area, it, you would know about it. So I don't think her experience is true. I, I, I'm sure it happened. I'm sure she showed up to a busy Home Depot one day. Like, that's not unusual. That's just bad timing. But that that probably happened. I don't think she made that part up. I don't think she was standing in the middle of a Home Depot empty parking lot. And she goes, stop hitting me with your cards. His nails are everywhere. I don't think that happened. They'd probably she showed up right before it got busy. It got busy. Everyone bought their stuff and bounced. But here's how you could actually do this. First off, don't charge the people money. Don't take money out of their accounts. Because there's also some weird... She goes in this whole thing about phishing information. That Leave that part out, app developers. <laughs> leave out the part where you're basically just mass harvesting information. And leave out the part where you're stealing money from them. Here's how you do this. Build an app, and it's basically Pokemon Go... But it's other people are set up as the Pokemon. And here's the key, though. You have to make it so the other person doesn't know they're it. Because I know they have app games where it's like, the blue side versus the red side. Who can take people's territory the first? It's actually, that predated the apps. It's called the Bloods and the Crips. But, you know those, like, go stand in this spot. It's blue territory. Stand there for five minutes. Actually, that still is. Basically, gang warfare. You'd have a crip go into the wrong neighborhood and be like, no, I'm selling drugs here now. And they were like, well, we're going to have to shoot you. Like, that's that's the way this game works. You only get one life. But I've seen games like that. The key is that you would have to have that thing where you would have the app downloaded on somebody's phone without them knowing, because that's the spooky part, right? If everyone knows they're part of the game... I guess you don't have to make it super spooky. I guess you could have everyone download the app and at random you're chosen as it. But the point is you shouldn't know that you're it. People should just start to pour into your hometown and start like looking around, having their phones out. Wouldn't that be an awesome game? I mean, there'd probably be a lot of traveling involved because I don't think you'd get millions and millions of people playing. (laughs) You're like, hey, boss, can I take a week off work? I have to drive down to Albuquerque and stalk somebody. To win a, you, they would have to win a prize. Like this one, they had lottery tickets and stuff like that. So you would say the person who could get closest to, oh, here we go. The person who can get closest to it without it hitting an alert. Oh, see, I have to change something. Whoever gets close, you're like, Jason, what is this podcast now? Is this Shark Tank? What, what are you doing? What is this segment? You want someone to build an app for you is what you want to do. I do not want to be associated with this app in any way. I don't want it to be called the Dead Rabbit Radio Fun Time Stalker app or anything like that. I'm not even being sarcastic. Leave me out. <laughs> Leave me out of this. I'm just pitching this idea into the universe. The person who knows they're it, they'll have a... They don't know they're it. They, you never know if you're it, right? But the app does have an alert button. So if you think you're it and you think someone's being really weird around you, you hit the button. If you hit the button and someone who's a tagger is not by you, you actually get penalized. It shocks you. <laughs> it gives you a 30-second, 20,000-volt shock through your phone and completely drains your battery in the process. But if you hit the button and the dude is, that actually is a weirdo walking next to you, then you win a prize. You win some money. <laughs> you win money out of their account. $2 have been deposited, and they get a 30-second, 20,000-volt shock. But if they don't hit the... If you're able to walk within five feet of someone who's it, and they don't hit that button, then you win... You win... Their, you get their phone! You get their phone! Their phone becomes bricked until they give it to you, and then you get a phone. There you go, guys! That is my new... Wait, no, it's not mine. It's not mine. Leave me out of this. 
But that is your new app. That's how you're going to spend your weekend. I want you to program that app. I got to be honest. I don't know where I was going with this segment. I don't know where I was going with this segment. I did want to talk a little bit about uh, weird gang stalking stuff again. And then it just kind of morphed. I said in the beginning a game that could ruin humanity. Let's see if I can wrap it up like that. If you had this, imagine if everyone was stalking each other 24-7. Everyone was in a constant state of alarm. Everybody wanted to win a brand new phone, and nobody wanted to get electrocuted. And so you had everyone in the country, because they're hearing great things. People are walking around with two phones, three phones. They're really good at this game. So everyone's always has their little finger on that alert button, afraid that they're it. They never know. People are super paranoid. The president of the United States is like, stay away, Secret Service. I know one of you are going. They're like, sir, sir, no, no. People are hiding out in doomsday bunkers because they don't want to be tagged. They're like, I'm not it. I'm not it. I'm not it. Rocking back and forth in the darkness. People are pounding on the door. You're running out of oxygen. Oh, that's just a trick. <laughs> that's just a... <laughs> You could destroy society if you made everyone so paranoid that any moment, at any moment, any time, they can be electrocuted and lose their phone. You would have a world of people that were super paranoid. And then you would have a whole group of people being like, you know what? I'm not even going to have a phone. I'm not going to have a laptop. I'm going to stay away from technology because people keep stealing it. People keep taking my laptop when I'm out at a coffee shop because I didn't hit a button in time. No way. And then we'll return to a blissful time where man lives in harmony with nature. Somewhere off in those things the old-timers called cities, there are still half-men, half-electrical, half-men, half-electrical current, still roaming the cities, apparently playing a game where they steal each other's phone. But most of humanity has evolved to live in a green, lush wonderland. And then one day a kid picks up a pine cone and he goes, if I pick up, <laughs> hey, Billy, you got a pine cone too? And he's like, yeah, I do. He goes, uh, let me pull a piece of my pine cone out. <laughs> That's like an app now. And then if I put my finger in it, I don't know. You guys get it, right? Circle of life. Like eventually the kids are just going to turn pine cones into phones. I don't know. You guys get it, right? Twist ending. Oh, and the whole story takes place. They're actually all fleas on the back of a dog. I bet you didn't see that twist coming. But but let's go back a twist. Do I even have to explain it? Do I even have to explain it? Society will eventually begin to evolve to the point where they're doing this stupid game again. But again, they're just fleas on the back of a dock, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> DeadRiverRadio at gmail.com. Who's crazier? The person who believes in gang stalking or the person who covers gang stalking? Like, really, the fact that I've had to read so much about this stuff. And, and, and exhibit A is the last segment, right? DeadRabbitRadio@gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at Facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys. 